News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is one of the largest bread producers in the country. We're talking about Canada Bread. And Canada Bread has now pleaded guilty to fixing bread prices. We're talking criminal charges here. And the result? Well, the company will pay a $50 million fine. That is the largest fine for price fixing that has ever been handed down by a Canadian court. But it took years to get here. And essentially what the company admitted is that, okay, we were under previous management when this happened, but oh, all right, we colluded with competitors in the industry to raise wholesale prices, meaning you and I were paying more Higher prices for consumers for bread because they had been fixing the prices for years. And okay, there were consequences in this particular case, but what does this say about our industry here as a whole? We wanted to break that down this morning. Mike Von Massau joins us, Associate Professor of Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you today? I am good, thank you. Are you surprised by the size of this fine and that Canada Bread said, yeah, okay, we admit to doing this? Well, I mean, to me, it's a bit surprising that this late in the game, we're starting to get some results. I had kind of given up on on any sort of resolution, given how long it had taken. Um, uh, what was interesting to me is that it was the wholesalers and not the retailers, right? It, remember, when, when this came out, it was Loblaws who said, oh, we, we've done it, uh, but it was their it was their Western Bread Division. So, so it I'm I, I'm surprised uh, that we got anything, and, and and to me it says a little bit that that the competition bureau is working, if a bit slow. Right, because this has been going on. I think this came out what in 2015. That's when Loblaw and um, Weston disclosed that they had okay, yes, we've been doing this, but they've been doing it from 2001 to 2015 at their stores and at their manufacturing business. Like we were being like hosed at every step of the way when it came to bread. Well, this means what, what yesterday's admission means is that, that bread was not only more expensive at Loblaws stores, it was more expensive at all grocery stores because it was the two big wholesalers who were, who were fixing price. Loblaws was aware of it, but it was Weston's and, and Canada bread who were, who were setting these higher prices for grocers across the board. So yeah, it meant that for years and years we were paying more than we probably should have been for bread uh, at all grocery stores, no matter where we bought it. So what does this tell us about the industry then, Mike? I know I think Canadians are already pretty skeptical of these days of the grocery store industry in Canada, aren't they? Well, I think I think there is some suspicion of, of grocery stores. We heard uh, about greedflation, and you know, in fact, the the parliamentary committee last week came out and said, "Well, if the we didn't find anything, but if the competition bureau finds something, we should do something about the grocery stores." I think again, it's important to distinguish here. While Loblaws was involved at those parliamentary committees, the Sobies, the Metros, the other people said, "Look, we had nothing to do with this, uh, and so we need to think about where in the food system this was happening." This was. Canada Bread, which is a bakery, and Weston's, which were a bakery, who, who were having those conversations and setting prices high. So, I mean, I'm splitting hairs a little bit because it was because really 
it meant that we're paying more for for uh, for bread. But I'd I'd highlight that there's no evidence yet that it was the grocery stores who were doing this. Right, and I also noticed that the companies were pretty quick to sell these their bread divisions when this came out, right? Because even Canada Bread was at that time owned by Maple Leaf Foods. They sold it. Another company owns it now. And even Weston, that bread division also sold off by Loblaws as a result of this. Well, and I think, you know, maybe maybe these are sort of preemptive. Who knows why Maple Leaf Foods uh, got out of the bread business? I mean, they, they see themselves as a protein company, so it may have been a strategic move anyway, but you're right. That came after uh, that, that came after that came after that admission. Uh, the Weston sale is more recent, but that might make some sense uh, to do that before you're told to do that. Because one outcome here could have been we need separation between grocers and their suppliers uh, because that might have made it easier for them to do this price fixing. Do you think that, Mike, given all of this and how long it's taken to get to this point? Do we have adequate supervision, do you think, of prices and the grocery industry in Canada? Well, I, you know, I, I think this is an example where it worked. Um, now, it, it had to happen that one of them came out and said that this is what's happening. And, it, uh, and, and yeah. so, uh, I, so, so, so it doesn't mean... The, that it's not happening more. I think that the parliamentary committee last week, one of the things that I thought were were positive out of their report, there were some negatives, was that they said we should probably strengthen the competition bureau, and I think I think that that's true. Um, although, you know, again, in the grocery industry, there's lots of reasons that food prices are up. There's no evidence that there's a significant contribution of grocery stores to food price inflation. So. Uh, this is pretty rare. Is it rare because it happens very little or is it rare because it's hard to catch? Probably a little bit of both. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of other things we can do from a regulatory perspective uh, rather than uh, other than, you know, keep checking and keep watching. That's exactly what we need to do. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. That's Mike von Massau, Associate Professor of Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph, talking about uh, price fixing on bread. It is a Canadian scandal. You've got bread companies that admitted for years they had been fixing the price of bread. So we were paying more money than we should have been paying for this. And we only found out about it because one of the companies came forward because they got tired of the shakedown, I guess, and said, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. And they're the ones who fessed up. And as a result of the years and years of investigation into this Canada bread, one of the largest bread producers in the country, they make brands like Dempster, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, having being levied a $50 million fine in court this week, the largest fine for price fixing that Canada has ever seen. But you know what? Does the grocery industry need more supervision, do you think? I mean, look at the prices that you see when you go to the grocery store, you know, on a weekly, daily basis. And every time you're like, how is this so expensive? How did it get so expensive so quickly? You're like, ah, they, we need to look into this. This is Mornings with Simi. Send out all these resumes, right? Resume after resume, and you don't get any calls back. And you think, what is going on? Well, guess what? 
Our contributor, Scott Chance, might just have the answer for you this morning. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Yeah, good. Nobody wants to be in that position where you're, you know, blanketing uh, your city and your field with resumes because you're looking for a new gig and you just can't get a call back. But I think a lot of people can relate to this. A lot of people have been there. And uh, what you may be missing, that gap in your resume, is something called micro-credentials. I'm fascinated by this because I've heard this from so many people, particularly in their 20s. Yes. I know a lot of them in that generation looking for a job right now, and I've heard this multiple times. I go, I send it out, nobody ever calls me back. Yeah, you need to get some of these micro-credentials. These are like short, sort of purpose-based courses uh, for a specific field. They, so the idea is kind of to upskill you and uh, get you specific, like targeted experience. Uh, sometimes it's from accredited institutions, sometimes it's not, but the question that's kind of out there is how do these like mini courses, these micro credentials compare to full fledged university degrees? Uh, Josh Greenblatt is a writer from Toronto. He's written about like labor and job markets and stuff a lot. I spoke with him about what difference micro credentials can actually make. But first, I wanted to really understand what it is that we're discussing here. So I started by asking him, what are micro credentials? So basically, they are short uh, certificate granting courses uh, that can range anywhere from, you know, a couple of weeks to a couple of months. And they're offered either part time or full time. You know, full time can be maybe, you know, three month like boot camp style, which is a little bit more in depth. And those are kind of targeted towards people who want to make a career switch or dive into a particular career if you're kind of an early, you know, career prof- early career professional. Uh, or, you know, if you want to just dive into, you know, a digital skill like, you know, particular, you know, discipline of digital marketing or digital design or UX design, they have sort of specific courses for certain things to upskill you. Um, those are designed to either, you know, sort of, you know, upskill you on the job because on the job train, you know, they're not, you know, don't have the resources or time to train you. So you can go do it after work or, uh, you know, to maybe pivot into to sort of inch towards a new field. Is this um, something new or has this been around for a while? I think they've been around since, you know, it's hard to know the exact origins, but I would say they've really taken off in the last decade or so. So I would say with the rise of digital media um, and sort of companies transition, like, you know, undergoing digital transformations, uh, that's been a particularly, you know, ripe opportunity for micro-credentials. How, how much do you think employers are recognizing or looking for this type of stuff? You know, I think that really depends on a few things. I think that depends on, you know, because we live in such a credentialed <laughs> yeah. market, I think that the right credential does kind of go a long way. Uh, and so I do think that they can certainly help. Um, I think the overall question is like, it's more of about an existential crisis of higher education uh, and the gap between what you're learning and what you ha- what the labor market demands. And with the decline of on-the-job training, I think that you know, if you want to work in tech, like I know a ton of people who have done coding boot camps, a ton of people who have done these digital marketing courses, and they, they do help. Interesting. Um, for so long, I feel like, and there's this conversation kind of out there right now that it's like, oh, I went and spent, you know, $60,000 on a degree, and mm-hmm. it doesn't provide me with anything that actually has gotten me, you know, they're like, oh, you need experience, or you need this, or you need that. So is this like, this is like a disruptor, right? That's the thing. Is it a disruptor or is it in addition to a university degree that's now both increasingly irrelevant, 
particularly within the humanities or, you know, arts or social sciences or, you know, disciplines like that, is it, it's, but it's a, a requirement, but also increasingly relevant. So it's a little bit of a strange thing that you have to have. And then these micro credentials are in addition to that. Do you think that universities are, are, um, bothered by this? Do you think that they're trying to get on board with this? Do you have a feeling about that? I would imagine they're probably trying to get on board. I don't know. I feel like they're sort of almost two ships past just because they you, they don't necessarily compete with one another just yet, at least from my perspective. They seem to be sort of uh, working to get in tandem and they sort of need each other. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I don't necessarily think that universities are threatened by the rise of micro-credentials. I think they're more threatened by the rise of... Um, the subject, the subject matter of or degrees being increasingly irrelevant, even though there's still a lot of value in education. So I think that that's kind of where, where we're at now. If, if someone is listening to this and thinking, like, this is the first I've ever heard of it, but it makes a lot of sense. Is there like a, like, um, a place that a person could just start on the internet? Here's a list of some of the stuff that's available, kind of broad scope, anything like that? I would say there's there may not necessarily be a unified sort of like here's where to get this micro credential for this company. They're all sort of uh, very um, specific and they're very targeted. So I would say find out where you want to be, and then kind of do some googling around for short courses, micro credentials. Have a look at some universities and colleges to see if they offer sort of short certificate. Um, that would kind of be a good place to start. So there you have it. If you're uh, not getting the call back, not just your your degree, you also need a degree and then a whole bunch of micro credentials as well. But that is so valuable because you are exactly right on that, right? You can't be generic with your resume. It has to be more tailored for that. That was excellent advice, Scott. Yeah, just do a little bit of Googling. <laughs> Thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. You think you're paying fair prices at the grocery store? Oh, this is a tough one, especially in light of this story about Canada Bread paying a $50 million fine for price fixing the price of bread for years in this country. Our Scott Chance is with us now to talk about this. Does that surprise you, Scott? Honestly, it kind of does because I I don't I don't want to say that I'm like I thought better of of people, but I did. I, I wanted to be the person who was like, no, no one is no one is like none of these billion dollar corporations are knowingly taking advantage of Canadian citizens, you what? know? I, I wanted to think that people are inherently way, good if, and if, doing if the right thing. We're all getting to know Scott here. He really is a Pollyanna because I'm like, really? You you believe that? Well, okay. So like, I'm sort of framing it in my head like this, you know, the, the idea that, that companies were knowingly raising prices, companies that were already immensely profitable, by the way, I, I did a quick Google. So both Maple Leaf Foods and Weston Foods uh, last year, annual revenue was like North of $2 billion. So like there's a ton, I know that this was before Maple Leaf Foods sold Canada bread, what we're talking about. It was always profitable. It, always. And so they were always making money, but apparently it wasn't enough. And that's my thing, you know, so people were like, oh, it's, it's almost conspiracy theory like, so that maybe that's why I didn't want to buy into the idea that that companies well, sure. were actually doing this. The idea that executives would be meeting secretly to fix the price of bread. And you're like, 
Why? Well, it turns out it was worth millions and millions of dollars. Even to do it by apparently six or seven cents right. was, was enough to boost their profit margins considerably that they were doing it for 10 years. Yeah. And I mean, there was a lot of talk about this around the pandemic with uh, supply chain and grocery price prices going up and stuff, but it had nothing to do with that. This started way before that and they were just doing it because they could. And does it not make you think, Scott, that in some cases it's still going on out there? Oh, Definitely. I think that so the $50 million fine that's being that they're being charged. I hope that that is the first of many that they discover so many more um, instances like this and uncover more of this sort of corruption and and greed and stuff, because. Uh, like, we're better than this. You know, we're better than this, Apparently Simi. we are not, Scott. <laughs> Apparently we're And that's the frustration I think people feel. Like, people were actually sending, some people sent me pictures of bread prices recently. Yeah. And when you look at them, and like, I started making bread during the pandemic, and we have not gone back to buying bread. Oh, but okay. I still check the price of bread when I go. So I will make on the weekend two loaves of bread to last, you know, for the week. I don't feel bad about eating it because I'm making it. But then you go to the store and you're like, six bucks? Yeah. For one loaf of bread? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. And I think that, you know, that's still happening across the board with all sorts of grocery prices, no matter where you shop. And people are people are pissed off. Rightfully so. As well they should be. Yes. Scott, thank you. That's the thing. Like, do you still think we are being hosed at the grocery store? Like, are we paying unfairly high prices? You tell me what you think about that and let me know. Like you look at some prices at the grocery store and you think, how is it that expensive? I'm sure you've had that experience. What was it? What product was it? Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. But I really can't believe that after all these years, there is once again the question of corruption and the International Olympic Committee. Because you would think that after all the scandals and all the questions, that maybe they would have gotten their act together. Doesn't sound like it, though, because this week comes word that French police have raided the headquarters of the Paris 2024 Olympic Organizing Committee as part of not just one, but two separate corruption investigations involving contracts with the Games. I mean, think about that for a second, right? Go all the way back to the Salt Lake City Olympics of 2002. Remember that high-profile bribery scandal back then? And oh, things were supposed to change. Why is it so hard to get the scandal out of the Olympics? Well, Dr. Mac Ross is with us now, an assistant professor at Western University's School of Kinesiology, teaches sports and ethics, and joins us for more on this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Are you surprised to hear this news? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Um, the, the way the Olympics is set up, it's so big, it, it requires so much space, it requires so much money, so much investment. That's really what the Olympics are about. It's not so much about, um, you know, it's about creating a platform for um, these large transnational organizations to, to sell their products and sell their brand more so than it is about the athletes themselves. So they get into these situations where there's really not much option um, but to do something that's illegal uh, in order to make it all come through. And we're seeing that every single year now. Um, the, the, the charges aren't proven right now uh, in, in France, so we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, I guess. 
Um, but there is definitely a pattern of behavior here. Um, and I think we're to the point now where, where the public needs to recognize that there's really only two options. Either the IOC is willfully blind, so they know what's going on, which I think is the case, or they're just a bunch of well-intentioned imbeciles, which doesn't seem well, to be That's not good either. That's not good either. No, neither is good. But I don't think I don't think the latter can be true, right? Um, they, they've had a carryover of staff and of administration from games to games to games. They know this is going to happen, and they don't do anything about it. Um, and I think that's why you, you don't see them really making a big deal about it right now. It, it, it's just par for the course. Is it just too much money? Like so much money is involved here then that it's just irresistible to people thinking, oh, I'll just, I'll just take my cut to make this happen. Yeah. So in the cities, in order to make this happen, you have what scholars call a state of exception. So cities are willing to accept things uh, happening that they normally would never allow, um, whether that's massive gentrification uh, of areas that push out um, some of the most vulnerable populations, whether that's uh, knocking down affordable housing, whether that's environmental impacts. There, There's this state of euphoria almost where they, they feel obliged um, to make sure that this gets to the finish line because they've already committed themselves. And I, I don't think we can overlook the fact that some actors are going to use it intentionally for wrongdoing. They see the state of exception as an opportunity and they can they can get in there and try to make the most of it while the circus is in town. And and then when it leaves, um, hope that nobody noticed. And in this case, obviously, people are noticing they've noticed multiple times uh, and it doesn't seem like they're going to get away with it. Okay, so what is the attraction then for countries and for cities to bid on this? Like, we know this is going to happen. Why do we do this? Why do we line up for this? Uh, it's increasingly not happening. Um, so in the, the bidding around this Paris 2024 games, they actually gave out two Olympics at the same time, which is very unusual. So they gave LA the 2028 Olympics uh, because they can't get can't get countries to line up and ask for it like they used to. Um, I don't know how they're going to change that. Uh, the population of the world is, is onto the onto the to what's going on, uh, and they're seeing the ramifications even here in Canada. So in Vancouver, with um, you know what people call the Olympic Kidnapping Act and uh, rounding up some of the most vulnerable people in the downtown core and just moving them without their permission, without their consent. Uh, that's a, a massive violation of human rights. But because of that state of exception that, that the city was primed with, they're willing to to not really either recognize it or or just kind of move forward without dealing with it. Um, and there was other things. In Montreal, the same thing kind of happened where affordable housing was taken away and people were put up in hotels that they were, they were creating signs called the Olympic Victims Hotel. Um, so this goes way back. Like, we know this in Canada. The world knows this. Um, this is part of the reason why Canadian bids haven't been working lately uh, or, you know, the intention to bid at the local level is getting cut off by the people often. Right. So this is just something that we should accept. It is why people are turning off the Olympics, though, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly people still watch. A lot of people watch the last Olympics, but they don't want it to come to their town. Um, down in down in Colorado, for example, they they held a vote and they've actually passed legislation where Anytime the Olympics is proposed, 
the population gets to vote on whether it comes. And of course, it got defeated because the negative ramifications of an event like that coming to your town far away, the, the momentary influx of people and money. Uh, and there really is no evidence that it's going to increase tourism or anything like that over the long term. There really isn't. So why do we do it? Uh, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. You know that fentanyl is coming in, illegal weapons are coming in, stolen cars are going out, and other items. It's time, especially with the announcement for doubling the port volume and doubling the size of the port, it's time now that Canada reinstates some form of significant police presence here in Delta and also in Vancouver. Okay, that is Delta Mayor George Harvey this week. Delta, of course, has a huge port facility in its midst with Delta Port out there. And as you heard him say, the mayor believes that the Canadian Border Services Agency just doesn't have the resources to deal with the smuggling of guns, drugs, stolen cars, and more. So how big is this problem? Well, let's talk to someone who's taken a look at this situation. Peter German is with us founder and principal of Peter German and Associates. Thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Pleasure to be here. How big of a problem, Peter, do you think it is at our ports when it comes to the smuggling in of drugs and guns and vehicles? It's significant. And uh, we identified it in 2019 in the second uh, Dirty Money Report. You know, Simi, uh, illegal commodities can only come into this country in one of three ways, through uh, air traffic, uh, the land border, or sea. And we know that containers are a huge uh, source uh, in, in terms of moving uh, illegal cargoes. Uh, that's worldwide. That's not, the, that's not Vancouver specific. But uh, we have a specific issue here because of the absence of uh, law enforcement or of policing in our ports. Okay, so what do you think of the idea of an established port police like they have, say, at the Port of Seattle? Yeah, well, we used to have that. We had the National Harbors Board Police, which became the Ports Canada Police, and they were abolished in 1997. Uh, and uh, the issue of policing was turned over to local authorities uh, when the Ports Canada was restructured. So now what you have in your ports, uh, what we have, are uh, private security and electronic surveillance. Uh, but we don't have any dedicated police. CBSA is not a police force. They're a law enforcement agency with a very specific mandate in terms of uh, customs, revenue collection, and so forth. The United States, as you mentioned, uh, Seattle is quite different than the Canadian. Right. In what way? Well, uh, they've got a dedicated uh, port police. Uh, We have in Seattle what's called the Port of Seattle Police, and they are responsible for uh, policing uh, both the airport and the seaport. And they have a force of about 140 uh, sworn and unsworn officers. Uh, it's a full police department. It's similar to uh, the transit police here in the Lower Mainland. And uh, that's their role. Uh, and to deal with organized crime, to deal with everything that uh, takes place in the ports, uh, we have absolutely no equivalent. Okay, and what, what kind of a difference do you think that could make? Like, is, is CBSA just understaffed? Like, what, what are the challenges here? Well, well, again, it's not CBSA's main role is not to be a police force, and uh, they do a good job in terms of intelligence collection and so forth. But the number of containers, for example, that are uh, examined is something like zero point five percent. It at least that's what it was a few years ago. Um, so most containers are not inspected, um, and in police, there are no police in the ports who have an ear to what is taking place. In about uh, 10 years after the abolition of the Ports Police, the Department of Transport itself here in Canada 
uh, indicated that organized crime was was sure to exist and to, and to continue. It was certain to continue smuggling large amounts of drugs and illegal goods through British Columbia ports. Um, so, you know, DOT has, has said that uh, itself. And they also mentioned that there are a couple of dozen people uh, associated with organized crime groups working in our ports. So, you know, really, who's looking at, who's looking at what they're looking at? What kind of a difference then could it make? So we have a dedicated, let's say we do have a dedicated port police. What kind of work could they do right away, do you think, that is being missed right now? Yeah, well, I, really, it's the eyes and ears. It, it's, it's, you know, what police are really work in a community. Uh, so just like the police in your neighborhood, you know, work with citizens, they know what's going on. So not only are they dealing with the, the various complaints that are now being moved out to municipal police departments of assaults and thefts, but they'll get to know who is working uh, at the ports. And they're also the liaisons. The other thing about, for example, the Port of Seattle, you've also got federal agencies working there. You've got the Border Patrol, Customs, Homeland Security investigators, and so forth. Uh, and, and really here, we're relying on the RCMP, who are not specifically funded to do this. It falls within their federal mandate. Okay, so then obviously all this stuff is coming through. Um, Like, are we in Seattle, for instance, the port police there, are they doing a better job, do you think, of stopping these items from getting through than we are here? Yeah, so, I mean, my findings are now about three years old. I'd have to update them and so forth. But let me put it to you this way. Um, Organized crime goes where the risk is lowest. And we saw that in terms of uh, our casino money laundering issue and so forth in the, in the lower mainland in, in British Columbia. Um, you're, you're not going to go uh, where the risks are high. Um, so it just stands to reason that you're going to go to an area where, let's say, criminal enforcement is low, penalties are low, etc. And um, so I, I think it, it's, it's more, uh, um, you know, it's just the way it is with organized crime. Uh, but in terms of actual numbers, I don't think anyone can really tell you, uh, you know, comparatively. Right. But obviously, yeah, you would you would pick where you're most likely to um, succeed. Given the pressure on this, is there any indication, Peter, that you can see that this is something that is even being considered at this point by the federal government? Well, I I certainly don't, you know, have any inside, uh, you know, track on what the federal government is looking at. But it is not something that's been in the discourse you know, of money laundering, organized crime. Uh, we raised it. I know that the mayor of Delta has raised it a couple of times. I believe the uh, Union of D.C. Municipalities also passed a resolution in 2019. But in terms of what the federal government is talking about, uh, not necessarily. I do know that, you know, it was reported a few years ago that the Port Authority here didn't see policing as part of its core mandate. And the only thing I would say is, yes, that's correct. But banks don't see anti-money laundering as part of their core mandate either, but they still have to do that work. And uh, that's why, you know, my sense of it is that we need that sort of policing in our ports. You know, that, that kind of amazes me, though, to hear that because you think, listen, if this is your facility and you know these kinds of criminal practices are going on in your facility, why don't you care more about that? Yeah, and I don't know if it's that they don't care, because I think what they'll tell you is that they have, you know, an excellent system of electronic surveillance as well as private security. But, you know, my quick retort to that would be, well, Simi, uh, where you live, um, if I told you that you, you will no longer have a police department, but we're going to replace it by electronic cameras and a private security firm, uh, how would you feel about that? You know, yeah. so it, it's really, yeah. 
That makes perfect sense. Like, yeah, we would not want that. Why do we find it acceptable um, at our at our ports? Peter, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. You're most welcome, Sue. Really appreciate that. Day. Yeah, you too. That's Peter German, founder and principal of Peter German and Associates, and of course wrote many reports on the issue of money laundering, where the money is coming from, how things are getting into BC, and obviously ports are a part of that, said part of the second report that came out in 2019. Uh, so the idea of port police makes perfect sense. So why aren't we doing it is the question. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The pressure around the Titanic wreck is so great that it is actually more pressure than the bite pressure of crocodiles and great white sharks. It's one of the reasons why the search for this missing submersible has been so incredibly challenging. I mean, not many things can survive at that incredible amount of pressure. I mean, it's taken days to gather a few robotic vehicles from uh, different points of the world to even show up and get to work doing that. And even then it might be too late. And of course, we're keeping an eye on that today for sure. There will be some developments. Uh, we wanted to talk though about the pressure down there, the challenges that that presents. Joining us now is Mayor Nahan, who's the Professor of Mechanical Engineering at McGill University. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, uh, nice to talk to you. So this amount of pressure, is this like a really rare thing to come across this in the world? Uh, yeah, very rare. I mean, the only place that you're going to find it is uh, underwater at huge depths. Um, although I'd say that that depth is not uh, that deep relative to other places in the world as well. Right. Okay. So how can anything even operate down there? How was this submersible even able to go down there then? Well, I mean, if you design it uh, properly, you can uh, get to that depth and even much higher. There, there have been... Uh, submersibles that have gone down to uh, roughly three times that depth. And what needs to happen? How do you engineer something to do that? Uh, basically, uh, more material. Essentially, the, the, the idea is that if you're in a pressurized container, right, uh, you have to build it thick enough so that it won't crumble uh, due to the external pressure. It's just, it's the same thing, but opposite if the pressure was from inside. People are more familiar with a, a pressurized container where the pressure is inside the container. Um, and But this is essentially the opposite. So basically, the higher the pressure, the thicker you make the container. How challenging is it to design something like that, Mayor? Because you'd think if it were easy, it would have been done like, way before this. Well, it has been done. I mean, there there are other uh, uh, vehicles that have gone down to those kinds of depths and have survived and, and, and even higher depths. Uh, so it's not like it's this is the first time it's been done. Uh, it's just that I guess I would say that the, the other places that have done it are have done it more slowly and more methodically than it seems at this place. Uh, has. Yeah, have you been following the story then? Like, what are you most curious about? What questions do you have in this case? Uh, I guess what, what I'm most curious about is the uh, the types of materials that they were using. So it sounds like they were using uh, titanium and uh, carbon fiber. The carbon fiber is unusual uh, in these kinds of applications. Mostly they use metals. Um, for lower depths, you might use steel, but titanium is more common when you're going down to these kinds of depths. But carbon fiber is unusual. Uh, people tend to stay away from carbon fiber because of uh, the difficulties in ensuring uh, quality control, basically. 
Right. And in this particular case, the company seems to be quite proud of the fact that they, I mean, they call themselves innovators, right? They thought they yes. were doing things differently. But what are the challenges there, right? Because obviously there should be a process for a certification on these things. Uh, there should be. But, you know, essentially this is a one-off and experimental vehicle. So um, it's difficult to, to get any kind of certification process for these very, very unusual vehicles. Uh, certification tends to come in uh, when you're doing something more routine. Uh, so they, they uh, you know, it's not surprising that they wouldn't have certified, but I guess what I would have thought is that they would have at least been open to m- more scrutiny. You know, uh, the, the, they, they seem to be very closed uh, to, you know, another pair of eyes looking at their design and, uh, you know, evaluating what they had done. Right. So what you're saying is if it were so innovative and it was so great, then show us the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, it's hard to say at this point. It's hard to say um, exactly, you know, what they did. Uh, but there does seem to be some questions about... Um, uh, the kinds of processes that they followed. Like normally when you're taking such high risks, it's a good idea to, you know, be maybe more cautious. I mean, it's great to, to innovate, but, you know, that has to be balanced with some caution. How well known was this particular vehicle? Like, is this something that in schools of engineering was being talked about? Mm, I don't think so, no. No, it was a relatively new vehicle. There are other vehicles that are better known. Like a, a good example is the Alvin vehicle uh, out of Woods Hole Oceanographic, which can go down to similar depths. Uh, that's a scientific vehicle. Um, and that, that vehicle has uh, existed for decades, and it's been upgraded over the years. Uh, that's the that, one that they've used, a, right? That's the one that went down to the Titanic wreck originally. It's the one yes, that they used to yes, go even film right. footage down there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and it's got a very different design. You know, the 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 hull for people is a, a spherical hull as opposed to you know more cylindrical thing. It's easier to design uh, a spherical hull because it resists pressure better. Like the the shape of the container, it's not just the material, but also the shape of the container affects how well you'll be able to withstand pressure. Okay, so that that was a known design that was working. Um, why why would somebody design something so different? Like, why not go with something that worked? Was it just too expensive to, to duplicate that, to build it? Um, I, I think they were trying to fit more people in, right? The, the uh, a spherical design is more difficult to put people in just because of the shape. Uh, so you'd have to build a very large sphere. Like, I think, for example, the Alvin only uh, can take a couple of people in it as opposed to five, this one. Right. Do you think there will be lots of questions uh, in that industry, in that area of engineering, Mayor, when all is said and done in this? For sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people looking at this. I think where, where there's going to be a lot of questions is, you know, the wisdom of uh, sort of underwater tourism, if you like. Uh, I mean, it's one thing for scientists and explorers to, to go down there, but uh, once it becomes a tourist attraction, uh, then it's open to more scrutiny because these people don't necessarily understand what they're getting themselves into. That is very true, right? A liability waiver or no waiver. Uh, Mayor, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Have uh, a great day. You too. And thank you for explaining that to us. It's Mayor Nahan Jose, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at McGill University, explaining the kind of science and engineering behind this particular submersible. It was um, a prototype 
so to speak. It was the only one of its kind. And as he said, that was probably for a reason because, um, you know, they wanted to fit more people in there as opposed to the type of design that they knew would work like the type of vehicle that had been making dives to the Titanic for decades now, the one out of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, uh, which was the one that Dr. Robert Ballard originally used to find the Titanic. That design worked, wasn't big enough, I guess, to fit more people in so that they could charge $250,000 per person to do that. Now, this morning, it's critical because this is the day that the company and that the U.S. Coast Guard had originally said was the day that they would run out of oxygen supply. 96 hours was the window that was given from the time that the submersible went down on Sunday. Start with that clock running. Well, this morning is the time that that would theoretically run out. Now, the U.S. Coast Guard says they believe that there is more that we need to account for the survival mechanisms, uh, the, the things that perhaps the people in there would have done to preserve that oxygen supply. So the search continues. They've got more remotely operated vehicles that are combing the ocean floor as of this morning, about two or three of them at this point, one from France, one from Canada as well. Uh, so we'll continue to talk about this. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one of the many stories out there about the Ocean Gate submersible that everyone is searching for is that there had been a lot of concern expressed in the past about its safety and seaworthiness. It never underwent a certification process for the depths of the Titanic that this vehicle was going to go to. In fact, back in 2018, dozens of industry insiders actually sent a letter to the CEO of Ocean Gate Expeditions that would be stocked in Rush who is on board that submersible. And in that letter, they said they were concerned about the company's submersibles not undergoing this process. One of the people who signed that letter, one of the signatories there is with us now, Will Conan, who's the CEO of Hydro Space Group and the chair of the Marine Technology Society. Will, thank you for being here. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Uh, you know, we like all these titles, just make it the uh, chair of the uh, submersible committee, uh, not all of the Marine Technology Society. Well, actually, that's even better then, because you can tell yeah, me exactly okay. about this particular vehicle. So what kind of work does your committee do in making sure that people who build these things and use these things are, are, are safe? Yeah, well, the uh, Marine Technology Society is a volunteer group, uh, and the Committee on Submarines is uh, uh, experts from around the world that, that gather and uh, we gather once a year and we discuss design, operations, regulations regarding this narrow field of underwater vehicles. Um, and yes, there are a bunch of crazies that do that. Uh, and the um, so and we promote we promote just what is the uh, it, it is about safety. And it is about safety because we all have a duty of care. Something that complicated. Right. So when people, when you heard about this, when you heard about yeah. this five years ago, what were you, what were your thoughts back then? Well, the the issue, uh, you know, we welcome all sorts of innovation. It's just new companies come come into the fray, and and it's an open door, and everyone has great innovative new plans. But sometimes you 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 know it's uh, it's. Uh, uh, adding this boldness and then the addition of some wisdom to it. Uh, it is easy to be young and bold. Uh, it is more valuable to be old and bold. And the difference is is the addition of some wisdom and knowledge. So our concern was maybe you're going a little fast here and 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 
the consensus was maybe we really ought to to let them know that in general we have concerns mm-hmm. that uh, bypassing the traditional certification process for a uh, better and faster uh, uh, way was uh, maybe not safe. Okay, what was the reaction to the letter then when it was sent? Well, it's you know it's a tension between all industries always between the innovators and the regulators. Uh, that is why we work on the committee trying to to uh, uh, improve that process. Uh, to the regulators, uh, the people want to change too much. To the innovators, uh, it's too slow a process. So where is the proper balance? Well, that's that's an ongoing issue. Uh, here, well, what was our concern is that they were saying. Uh, no, uh, our strategy is to bypass the traditional certification process. And uh, to us, it is something that had held us speed for 50 years, and we trust the process to keep us safe. And uh, we encourage them to, uh, to, to take a more traditional approach or at least perform a rigorous, rigorous set of testing that would be accepted by some of the certification agencies. Right. Well, it's such a fine line, though, isn't it? Right. Like, yes, innovation is great. Uh, Sometimes innovation is appropriate. But when you're talking about something as highly specialized as this, do you have to be careful with innovation? Well, it it changes, right? I mean, if you're innovating a new shoe is one thing. If you're innovating a new submarine, there are so many details, and you know the often question, well, what is it? Well, it isn't one thing. Uh, it is an incredible amount of details that go in there, and you know you say, well, that's really nerdy, but but yes, the and it is the it is the assembly of the entire thing that is important. Everything has to work together, and you know part of the the third party inspection uh, it brings in a lot of outside expertise. That just does make sure that you haven't forgotten something or maybe you should have a redundant part over here. Well, I think your next meeting is going to be really fascinating because I'm sure this will be a topic. But what lessons do you think we can take away from all this? Well, it is a cautionary tale, right? I mean, that that is for sure. It's It's a very, very sad. It is a very sad moment and it is a tragic moment. And, um, you know, I say you know, say, well, how, 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 you know, well, how do you feel? And so where does it put us? And it is very much akin to any coach or teacher or parent that has a, a, a teenager that does something dangerous and gets themselves in really deep trouble, despite your most sincere uh, advice uh, going unheeded, it leaves everybody empty and sad because, then you just feel, well, what else could I have done? Uh, and and the tragedy of it is 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 there. And and you know, it asks the question: What is our what what is our right to freedom? And I can do anything I want, uh, including the, uh, the you know, what's the right we all have to those? And uh, I think we need to be careful uh, 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 on that as well. Uh, I do believe in that right, but. We must also remember that we have a privileged here in society, modern society, with all the amenities we have that uh, that gives us the right to 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 work in this field, very advanced field. I mean, we're supported by so many things and the duty of care we have is not just for the safety of the people, but to make sure we don't get into a situation like this where it requires Coast Guard from two, three countries to come to the rescue. 
because that, I mean, that naturally will have people saying, why is it costing so much? So it is a privilege for all of us to to endeavor in this technology, but we also have a responsibility to make sure that 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 it's done properly for the sake of everybody. And this is a very, very sad day and unbelievably tragic for the family that's on the boat right now, hoping that maybe a miracle happens between now and sunset. Oh, that's very true. Will, thank you for your time on that this morning. Appreciate it. You're welcome. That's Will Conan, who's the CEO of Hydro Space Group, chair of the Submersible Committee for the Marine Technology Society. He was one of the signatories of a letter that was sent to OceanGate Expedition CEO Stockton Rush back in 2018, expressing well, worry and concern about the company's submersibles and the fact that they hadn't undergone a certification process. They were worried, essentially, about what they saw happening there. And we know that Stockton Rush, the CEO, is on board uh, the submersible that is lost. This morning is a critical time uh, for that missing sub because this is the morning where it was projected that the oxygen supplies would run out. Went missing on Sunday. Uh, there was thought to be a 96-hour window. And listen, rescue authorities have done everything humanly possible uh, to do that. And I know, as Will pointed out, there are a lot of questions about that too, right? The amount of money and effort that is being spent here, uh, given the fact that the this company had kind of thumbed its nose at the official channels of how to do things, thought they were innovators. And uh, there is concern about, you know, the fact that this is costing a lot of money. What had the company done to protect the people on board, the paying customers, people who'd spent $250,000 to do this? Uh, This morning, the search, though, does continue. Authorities say it is still a search and rescue effort, although as Will puts it, it is a miracle effort at this point uh, to think that perhaps someone is going to be found. Uh, There is another remotely operated vehicle that has arrived, this one from Britain. Uh, it, it can actually go down to about 20,000 feet uh, below the surface of the ocean. It is on its way to join the search there. Uh, that joins a French similar robotic vehicle and a Canadian robotic vehicle that is also kind of scouring the seabed there. But so far, nothing. And they are going to continue that search. We are going to be continuing to keep an eye on it. And any update, of co- uh, updates, of course, we will have that for you.